Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter, in chapter 1, as we continue our new series in this first epistle from Peter, the Apostle. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13 through 25 is our text today. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. I grew up loving and playing many different sports. I was obsessed with sports watching, studying, playing with friends, rooting for favorite teams. I then got into going to the gym, working out religiously, clearly something I'm not doing much of lately. But anyway, when I would follow these famous athletes, I would watch off-season training videos, don't judge me, and be amazed at their rigorous routines, dedication, and attention to so many little details when it came to muscle development, techniques, and maintenance, and so forth. And I remember watching, I think, a Discovery Channel show back when we watched TV, where while using computer graphics, it was amazing years ago, computer graphics and imaging, they were able to show how muscles, large and small, all the tendons, all work together so that we can walk, that we can run and that these super athletes, how they can perform. It was fascinating. So uh, just an example, the first scene in the show would be com a completely super fit Olympic athlete sprinting down the lane at an amazing speed. But then the next scene would go to the computer graphics and simulate what's actually happening beneath the surface of the skin. And it's simply amazing how God designed intricately and created our bodies to function in, this, in these certain ways. 
then I learned there are different types of muscles. There are smaller, slow twitch muscles, they call them, that are needed for long distance running and endurance. They don't tire out as easy as other muscles. Then there are the larger, fast twitch muscles that are needed for short bursts of strength, like a 40 yard dash sprint, or for all you power lifters out there, raising 500 pounds above your head for a couple of seconds, that takes these larger, fast twitch muscles. I bring all this up because one of the most common metaphors used by the New Testament writers have to do with athletic imagery. And we'll see another one shortly in today's passage. But as I read this passage, and as I just read this right now, you get an overall feeling and sense that this is an action-oriented passage. There's lots of movement. There's many imperatives, or we call them commands. And when we say movement, we think com continual movement, not just a, uh, at the beginning of your faith, but all throughout. And as I mentioned, even in our journey uh, last fall through Galatians, the New Testament letters are filled with this regular pattern of indicative verbs and imperative verbs. And if you don't care for those grammatical terms, just look at it this way. The New Testament writers would use the pattern, here's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Now respond and live his way. Here's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Those are the indicative verbs. That's basically a short description of what the gospel is. De verbs denoting a finished act of truth as in Jesus died for you on the cross, and then the imperatives are simply commands that follow to obey. This is what you do in response to the gospel. The Bible is never backwards in this pattern, as in do these things in obedience and then maybe you'll get to receive the gospel. But gospel first and foundational, and obedience as an outflow of receiving the gospel in faith. Imperatives, brothers and sisters, as we dive in to this action-oriented passage, remember are always grounded in the indicatives. But the New Testament writers aren't scared of using imperatives. Let's be very clear on that. I've run across a lot of people who seem to be very gospel-centered, but whenever you bring up the text that has an imperative, there is this kind of scooting back and saying, oh, I don't really like those parts of the Bible. I just want the indicatives, the gospel. But don't, I don't want a life change. I don't want to uh, be holy, as we'll see uh, later in the text. But let's be clear that the New Testament writers don't play that game. They are foundational in gospel indicatives, finished verbs of what God has done for us. But they are very courageous to say, and now something changes, a new life, a new pattern comes about. And so this passage is full of movement, active living as a response to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the scholars note, Peter mixes indicatives and imperatives throughout the letter. It's kind of, uh, it, it's not difficult to kind of wrap your mind around, but you know, it, it might be a little bit easier if the first three chapters or first couple chapters was a whole list of this is what God has done for you. And then the letter concludes with two or three chapters on, and this is how you should live. But rather, Peter mixes the verbs throughout every paragraph, almost, and every passage. And so that's why you need to put your thinking caps on, 
Pay close attention to when he does this, because this passage is a great example of mixing these verbs. And so each of today's four headings or summarizing points begins with the continual action verb to help you capture the movement and shape of the passage. And I'll repeat this as we go along, but the four headings are number one, preparing for action. We're gonna see that in verse 13. Number two, conforming to holiness, verses 14 through 16. Number three, remembering your redemption, verses 17 through 21. And then finally, number four, anchoring yourself in God's eternal word, verses 23, uh, 22 through 25. So, preparing for action. Number one, let's go to verse 13 as we begin. The verse starts, therefore, and as all good Bible readers will know, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? The therefore is pointing back to our passage last week where Peter encouraged us in verses 1 through 12 that as elect exiles, whose true home is not here on earth, but our true home is with Christ, and not in this short lifetime of ours here, we are, and I'll quote from the earlier passages last week, born again by his great mercy to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And that although we suffer through various trials for a little while, Peter says, as believers, those sufferings will, guess what, reveal the true genuine faith that you have in Christ that's been gifted to us by grace. And as a result, as verse 9 said, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then if you were here or watching last week, you remember those last three verses, and oh, about this salvation, oh, the prophets of the old, the angels, they searched intently and wondered how this would all come to pass and be fulfilled. They knew about the promise, but how is it going to actually be fulfilled? They searched intently. But we, Peter says, with the great privilege to hear the good news, this side of the cross, and though we have not seen him, Peter says we believe him and rejoice with inexpressible joy to be part of the salvation story all revealed to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, as we remember from the opening lines of this letter, is brought to us by the Trinity, and God the Father, and the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. So that's why you come to verse 13. Therefore, with all that gospel truth of Christ's obedience and his sprinkled, shed blood that allowed us to be born again to a living hope, look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the, look, look in the text there, in the middle of the sentence, in the verse, the main thrust is that first imperative. Set. It's a command. Set your hope. But Peter says to prepare yourself for setting your hope, he directs our attention to those two beginning supporting verbs there. You guys could see that in verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So let's unpack those helping verbs a little bit. First, to prepare, preparing your minds for action. Using the athletic imagery, as we spoke about in the introduction, Peter speaks of an active pursuit of readiness and preparation. 
Some older translations that some of you might have grown up with translate that phrase as gird up your loins. You don't hear that often today in our context, but preparing your minds for action literally is gird up your loins. And let me explain, as scholars and historians know, 2,000 years ago, that was the, cust the custom for men and women to wear long flowing robes. But if you're part of an athletic event, or even in the case of soldiers in war that also wore sometimes these long robes, you don't want to be tripping over them as you're sprinting or as you're fighting or as you're competing. So what they would do is gird up your loins, meaning they would bunch up the bottom of their robes and then tie them with some type of belt or rope uh, below the waist so that their knees are free to, to run as quick as possible, to run freely. And of, in the course of battle or even an athletic competition, of course, that was super important. So why is Peter saying this? R.C. Sproul notes, the girding up language was a, it's a physical image to the readers back 2,000 years ago. But Peter now is using this action and metaphor for the mind. Whatever affects your doing, if I could put it that way, first comes from your thinking. If one of your New Year's resolution was to eat more healthy, less culvers, more greens, and so forth, your actions won't just randomly happen to achieve that goal. I've tried that. It doesn't work. Your mind has to be made up first in order for actions to follow suit. So when I drive by Culver's, I say, no, not today. I've made up my mind. I've prepared my mind for this. Because I, trust me, I've never gravitated towards healthier food options just because I felt like it. You have to prepare your mind for doing so beforehand. And so Peter's essentially saying, that's the same thing for our spiritual lives. In order to apply all those wonderful gospel truths and to live set apart for Christ, your mind has to be sharpened, sanctified, and prepared for action. R.C. Sproul says again that Christians are called repeatedly in sacred scripture not to leave their minds in the parking lot when they enter into church, but to awaken their minds so that they may think clearly and deeply about the things of God, end quote. And so we dare not try to live the Christian life based on mere feelings for that day. Any age here, if you're a believer in Christ, we dare not try to live the Christian life based on your feelings for that day or on our emotions apart from the mind. I used to live, try to live the Christian life that way. I'll tell you, the, you drift and get easily distracted that way because our emotions and feelings, they change not just every day, but every hour, maybe every five to 10 minutes. So the children here who are watching through the stream or here with us today, if you have siblings, you can testify to this, right? What if your love for your brother or sister was based on how you felt about them at a certain point of the day? Your emotions and feelings change every hour, right? But if your mind, in your mind, if you remember that you love them, not because of how you're feeling about them right then, but if you remember that you love them because they're part of your family, and so your love goes beyond how you feel about them, that's when it sticks. 
Your mind dictates your actions and even your heart. Now, of course, Paul is not saying feed your intellect, have nothing to do with your heart. Emotions are bad. He's not saying that. But the Christian must pay attention to matters of the mind and also matters of the Christian heart. So back to the imagery. In war, soldiers would gird up their loins. They would prepare themselves for battle. And they wouldn't just casually say, well, when's the next battle? We'll we'll get prepared when we see it coming. They don't wing it, but they're always prepared and ready. Why should our attitude be any different in our Christian walks? And let me just say this humbly, and not in a, from a high horse, spiritual high horse saying, and so you guys just need to buck up and follow this. It's hard. But I'll tell you, in today's, at least American Christian context, oh, being ready and prepared in the mind is a non-starter for many people. And that's why we've seen, I think, in our nation, a drift away from loving the holiness of God and pursuing the holiness in God, in Christ, for us through the Spirit. Why should our attitudes be any different? And similar to the next phrase and helping verb, being sober-minded. One theologian writes, quote, in other words, do not be intoxicated with mind-numbing drugs, end of quote. I, I just love that succinct description there. Don't be intoxicated with not mind-numbing drugs. For any of us who have taken prescription me- medications or even over-the-counter medicine sometimes, there are reasons some of them have strong warnings about not operating a motorized vehicle after taking such medicine because your mind can't think straight with some of these things. Your thinking and coordination goes off. Many of them make you super drowsy. And of course, you don't drive under those conditions. So Peter is adamant that we prepare our minds for action and we're unhindered in our minds so that there is clarity. We're sobered up to think straight about how we are to live and apply these gospel truths. And as you apply these two helping verbs to yourself, you can then get to our first imperative, set. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What prevents you from following the commandment to set your hope fully? Well, if we are hindered in the mind, if we are blasé and nonchalant about preparing for action, well, you know that distinctly in your life. When our minds and judgment are cloudy, is it easy for you to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? If you remember from last week, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not vain or empty. It's not a shot in the dark, so to say. Biblical hope is not about believing in luck. Biblical hope is convinced of the certainty of what is being spoken about being fulfilled. So with sober minds, that are prepared for action, set your hope, this certainty on the grace to bring you face to face with Jesus when he returns or when we are united with him in heaven. And in the context of this letter, what can distract the mind from thinking of this hope? Well, Peter already knows some categories. Earlier in chapter one, he talks about the trials of various kinds that we suffer through for the sake of the gospel and the life's arduous difficulties that come about. That can distract anyone 
or our sinful tendencies that he'll talk later in this passage. Our former patterns and ways can hinder us, can cloud our minds. But you have to prepare for this. Sober up. Continually set your hope on the destination of this gospel journey. And as was stated last week, Peter loves grace. This biblical hope on the grace that will be brought to you, he loves grace. He can't get enough of the thought and word of grace. As one scholar notes, the grace of God is where our hope finds its anchor. And for Peter, the ship is moored or set in place by grace, in grace, and to grace. So that's the first portion and heading, preparing for actions. Now to our second heading in verses 14 through 16 with the heading conforming to holiness, conforming to holiness. Let me just read 14 through 16 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Last week, Friends, an important theme that will come up again in this passage was our identity as elect exiles. Exiles and pilgrims, why? Because this is not our permanent home. Our home is in heaven with Christ. We are simply passing through. But note, Peter isn't saying, and so forget about life here wholesale. Just Just look at your watch, count down the minutes until you go to heaven. No, Peter is saying, Our true home is not here, but while you're here as pilgrims and exiles, live for Christ now. Learn to live as citizens of your true home now, not when you get to heaven, but now. Learn the new patterns. Because we're gradually in our sanctification, and of course, with our continual battle, we'll still, still, sin still present, being ready to live the way we'll live for all of eternity. I knew that, but when I was preparing for that, I was, it was just a light bulb went off again. I said, yes, I want to practice how God wants me to be and who will gradually finish the work in me to be here in this lifetime. So as children who are obedient, so we... Um, So as children who are obedient, so he adds to our identifiers, children, we are to be holy as God is holy, not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Some can translate it as not conformed to the lusts of your former ignorance. So let's unpack that a little bit. Some scholars think that the passions of your former ignorance, that phrase is a reference to the Gentile believers here, the audience who before Christ only knew their ungodly pagan ways. And he's going to reference that again in verse 18. But converted believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, need to flee their former ways and no longer be conformed to those patterns or identity. Conform, if you're looking that up, can mean agreement. Don't be in agreement any longer when you were ignorant and unregenerate in the heart. Well, then, what should you be conformed to instead? Well, Peter says, our creator. Be conformed to our creator, God, who is holy. Of course, he's quoting directly from Leviticus 19, verse 2, 
God is holy, and therefore, and here's our second main imperative of the whole passage, be holy. Set your hope fully on the grace of God, and now be holy. The word holy can be defined one way as set apart. And of course, God's set-apartness, or some would say his otherness, is unmatched and unfathomable in many ways. But there are aspects where the character of God are communicable to us. We've talked about this before, meaning there are ways that God allows us to be conformed to his character. As we reflect him as restored image bearers, so be holy, set apart from the world. Of course, we can't be omniscient. We can't be omnipresent as God is. But we can be set apart and different, identifiably different from the world as we walk in God's ways. And as we study and learn more of the character of God, we seek to be conformed to him through the power of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, if you remember Peter speaking about at the beginning of this chapter. But there is most definitely a new pattern as elect exiles. I think Karen Jobes, New Testament scholar, summarizes this thrust, the thrust of this part so well. She writes, quote, Peter's call to holiness is concerned not only with the religious aspects of one's life, but also with one's whole way of life. The call is to live differently, not just practice religion differently. I think that's so insightful and helpful. For example, as a newborn Christian, pursuit of holy living is not simply, well, okay, what are the patterns? Religious people pray before meals. They go to church on Sundays. But every bit of your life is now under a new trajectory and pattern of thinking, speaking, and living. There's an old Latin phrase that was popular in the Reformation in the 1500s, quorum deo, quorum deo. Literally means living all of life before the face of God and submitting willingly to the sovereign direction and will of God. What does that mean, that short phrase? in the face of God is that every bit of your life, not just in this hour and a half on the Lord's Day service, not just in the prayer meeting before, not just at women's or men's group, not just on that one-on-one -on -one praying together or sharing God's word, but all of life is being lived to the face of God. Now, don't get it wrong. Of course, there are battles with sin until the day we die. There is the process of mortification which means the killing and the dying of the old self and patterns and ideologies. But there is a defined new trajectory. Karen Jobes helpfully, helpfully puts the old versus the new in helpful categories. From this passage, formerly, Peter says, we were ignorant of God. Now, we have the knowledge of Christ and God. Formerly, we were not God's people. Now, we are God's children and people. Formerly, we were controlled by sinful desires. Now, controlled by obedience to God. Formerly, live under, we lived under a futile way of life. Now, we live towards a holy way of life. Formerly, we were affirmed by society. Now, we are misunderstood and maligned 
by society. Basically summarizing what, what Peter is writing here. There is a distinct and categorical shift from what you were before and who you are now. And the desire for growing in holy, holiness is present for those that belong to the Lord. Just as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, our pre-service meditation this morning, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. As the wonderful scholar Thomas Schreiner notes, the first calling of the church is to live a consecrated, devoted, and godly life. I'll say that again. The first calling of the church is to live a consecrated, devoted, and godly life. I'm going to ask myself that when I go into the parking lot and drive home. That very quote, is this part of my calling? Do I see this? not just on Sundays before people, but quietly in the private life of my daily living in front of others throughout the week and in my relations to the community. Do I really see the call as a believer to be of a consecrated, devoted, and godly life? So to summarize from where we started, preparing for action, conforming to holiness, and now number three, remembering your redemption. Verses 17 through 21. Number three, remembering your redemption. Let me just start with verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's tackle that third main imperative first. That's in verse 17. Conduct yourselves. So that imperative is conduct. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The apostle Peter is addressing our status as exiles again. He is not saying, oh, cheer up. You're going to finally reach your geographical homeland soon on earth. But he's talking about our true home with Christ. And so if God is truly your father, you don't live in a fear that you'll somehow miss out on heaven because you weren't, quote, unquote, good enough, but you live in this life with a godly fear of reverence and humble submission to his will. But again, Peter is using these verbs as markers to distinguish those who believe and those who don't, those who set their hope on the grace of God, those who seek to be holy, those that conduct themselves not in reverence of the world or former ways, but with the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom that devotion and reverence unto God that differentiates them. And where is the imperative anchored on? Well, here is, remember how Peter switches from imperatives and indicatives? That's verses 18 to 21. Here, here's the groundwork of obeying in commands. It's what Christ has done. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. There again is to that previous pre-Christian pagan ways of these Gentile believers, that you were ransomed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Of course, referencing the Old Testament sacrificial system. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake 
of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In ancient Greco-Roman world, in, in the Greco-Roman world, as one scholar notes, slaves had their freedom purchased sometimes. That's the word used here, translated here as ransom, but can be literally translated directly as redeemed. And we don't use that word a lot. Maybe redeem a coupon is, is the kind of the most contextual evidence that we have in today's vernacular and language. But back then, it meant life over death to be redeemed and ransomed at a cost, of course. And this scholar notes that the word redeem entails liberation. Liberation from what? Well, they're old, futile ways. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what was the payment made for this liberation from the tyranny of sin, this futile thinking, this darkened, dead hearts? Well, the text says, the precious blood of Christ. Gold and silver, so valuable in those days, they were perishable. Just like today, their values changed all the time. Not so with the precious blood of Christ. Notice that adjective there, precious. Peter's saying nothing. Peter's saying, I've tasted this. I've seen this in my life. Nothing has greater value in this world than this. Some of you guys who love playing Xbox or some of you homeowners love your home or your new addition or some of us value friendship over so many other things. Nothing is as precious as the blood of Jesus Christ. One scholar writes, the shedding of blood signifies death, the giving up of one's life. Blood is precious because without it, no one can live. And that's a reference to Leviticus 17. And as Thomas Schreiner notes well in reference to the sacrificial lamb, early Christians saw Passover. In this passage, they saw Passover, the suffering servant and the sacrificial system as fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ as God's sinless lamb. And so then, as we saw last week, the full revealed plan of Christ was hidden until now. And through faith in him, we become believers of God. So following the movement and the action of this passage, we have number three, remember continually our redemption. That's the only way we can carry on as exiles in this world. That's the only way to carry on when you're struggling with sin and you're beating yourself up and you feel condemned. The only way we can carry on to pursue holiness is to remember continually our grounded, indicative verbs in the finished redemption of Jesus Christ. Now to our final heading, number four, anchoring yourself in God's eternal word. Anchoring yourself in God's eternal word, verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And what that just means, Daniel Doriani helps us, that the gospel also makes believers holy 
changes the heart and that we purify ourselves when we believe the gospel. So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Indicatives and imperatives. Peter is quoting, of course, from our Old Testament reading earlier this morning from Isaiah 40, in which the context was in the people of God being comforted, comfort, comfort for his people, because their iniquities be pardoned. And so we have another final command. This is the fourth command, imperative to action. And that is, can you see that? In verse 22, love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Because you were born again. That's the indicative. You were born again. So now what's the outflow? You love. You love your neighbor as yourself. You love others earnestly from a pure heart. So why? We were born again. How? Not as with humans, but but from the eternal and imperishable seed. And through the preaching of God's eternal word, the good news that was preached to you, he says. It reminds us of Romans 10, verse 17. I love this verse. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We are saved. We are born again. Why? Because the word was preached to us. And the Spirit allowed that word to be cherished and to penetrate the depths of our souls for our regeneration and salvation. But faith comes from hearing the preached good news of God. But back to the command, we love because God loved us first and saved us. And yet again, this is another marker of the Christian elect exile. Those who set their hope on the grace of God, those who pursue the life of holiness because God is holy, those who conduct themselves with fear and holy reverence while on earth, and finally, those who love one another because of what God has done on their behalf. Now, bringing this to a conclusion, as we spoke of the athletic imagery at the beginning and the movement verbs throughout the passage, prepare your mind, set your hope, don't be conformed, be holy, conduct yourselves to godly fear, love one another. The Christian life is full of active believing in and therefore obedience in Christ, but clearly not separated from the passive reception and resting in the finished work of Jesus. I bring that up because all this is possible, and here's the gospel connection. All of this is possible, of course, because of the the active and passive obedience of our Savior Jesus. Let me explain. Theologians point to Christ's passive obedience meaning his work on the cross, his incurring the wrath of God on our behalf, the punishment we deserve he took on himself, the forgiveness of sins by his shed blood. That's what theologians call the passive obedience of Christ. But there's also the active obedience of Christ. In Jesus' perfect record of obedience in his life, he obeyed the law perfectly, something we will never be able to do. He obeyed the law perfectly, And therefore, when we are regenerated and have faith in Jesus and his work and are justified, we get credited with all that record of obedience of Jesus. 
His perfect righteousness is ours instead of our depravity and sinfulness. We went over much of this in Galatians, the active and passive obedience of Christ. In the 1930s, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary outside Philadelphia, close to his death, wrote, I think, his last telegraph to his friend and colleague, Professor John Murray, another great theologian at Westminster. And he wrote the famous line now, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Now, obviously, as one theologian notes, Machen believed that the active and passive obedience of Christ were inseparable. There is no hope without all of Christ's perfect obedience. But the next time you try to think and pray through today's application and passage, how this will change our everyday living, never condemn yourself if you find yourself struggling to perfectly obey and apply. Continue to believe, of course. Continue to obey, of course, grounded in gospel truths. But we're able to believe. We're able to obey simply because of Christ's obedience through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. No hope without it, brothers and sisters. And as our friend R.C. Sproul encourages us, he said, the same power that keeps the inheritance reserved for us, we talked about that last week, is the same power that keeps us reserved, and I'll add preserved, for the inheritance. He doesn't just say, oh, there's this hope of a future inheritance, but he says, and I will bring the Holy Spirit in this promise to bring to completion what I started, that you will someday reach that inheritance. So in faith, brothers and sisters, and with the assurance that God will preserve us until the very end, let's prepare for action. Let us live up to our new identity as set apart from this world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for the eternal word of you, God. Oh, how your word brings us to saving faith but also emboldens us to grow in holiness, grounds us to remember the truths of our redemption, and teaches us the character of God so that we can be conformed to him and not to the world any longer. Oh, thank you, God, that this can be true. May we be so anchored in the gospel and Christ's accomplishments on our behalf that we live courageously in this foreign world, in this foreign land, as set-apart children of God, who desire to reflect you in every way for your own glory. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.